Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. This is number 34 in our second series, in our, excuse me, in our series in the second half of American history or U.S. history too. <clears throat> we are still in our ongoing discussion of the American influence and impact on America of the Second World War. In the 33rd podcast, if you recall, we continued our discussion on the impact and the developments of the American-based Manhattan Project with the goal of attempting to try to split the atom in order to be able to have a military application which would give the Americans, and by extension humankind, the most destructive weapon ever available into the human race. That said, we also looked at the U.S. home front by the fast track weddings. We looked at a couple of examples on how music reflected the time. We also looked at the rise and the development of, which is still to this day, the world's largest office building, the Pentagon, and some of the statistics on that. And then we ended by a brief preview of the military campaigns in the European theater as we return again to Europe to look at the way that the Americans, coupled with our allies, were going to attempt to try to defeat Nazi Germany. It would begin at Hitler's weakest point. And if my <clears throat> listeners or my listeners who are familiar with European geography, your uh, mind might be going to Northern France, perhaps Netherlands, or maybe even down to Italy. The fact of the matter is, in early 1942, Hitler was still, coupled with Mussolini, still was far too strong and held the European continent largely under its grip, making it impenetrable to the rising force of the American empire along with our allies. Therefore, to begin with the very first step of eventually getting our way to Berlin, and perhaps you might want to pause, pause the podcast to look at a map, and not just of Europe, but a map of also of the Mediterranean area, Mediterranean Sea area, and Africa, because it would be Operation Torch, the United States and Allied invasion of North Africa. We literally would start at the furthest point west in Morocco and work our way east along the northern borders of the Maghreb, the northern African countries that Hitler and Mussolini had a stronghold on and eventually try to expel them from the North African continent. That again is just testimony to just how strong Hitler and Mussolini were by this point. However, it would not be just a uh, frontal war that Hitler's prized field marshal Erwin Rommel would be fighting because England still had a toehold in the modern day 
country of Israel in the eastern half of the Mediterranean Sea region, as well as in Egypt. And one of her finer field marshals, Bernard Montgomery, was also influencing the region with his leadership and trying to also push Rommel back. So when the Americans landed via Operation Torch in Morocco, Rommel now had to deal with the two-front war because he had, again, the British coming from the east and now the Americans pushing in from the west. Add to that Hitler's logistical problems that we discussed in a prior podcast with not having the right oil viscosities, not having enough ammunition, that yes, he had brand new world-class weapons, but many of them were rendered useless because he didn't have the capacity to operate them, much less use them defensively. So once, and again, it would take all of 1942 to be able to push Erwin Rommel and the Germans, and extension the Italians, off of the North African continent. From there, we would work our way up with Operations Husky and Acrobat, where we would overcome the island nation of Sicily. From there, we would work our way up the modern-day boot of Italy. But please remember again that it was never, ever easy sailing over that Mediterranean Sea region or working our way up that boot of Italy. Many cities would have to be taken and then lost and then retaken again. And an extreme but sadly very violent example would be none other than Monte Cassino, which the American and our allies had to retake four times. So in many cases, our working our way up the boot of Italy was in some ways truly a war of attrition or battles of attrition. Remember again, that every time a city is gained by the enemy and then lost, all of those thousands of lives lost and how many more injured, those don't come bouncing back. They're gone. And that's, again, the reality and just how violent and deadly this war was continuing to play out. At the same time, while the Allies are working our way up the boot of Italy in the soft underbelly of Hitler's Nazi, uh, Nazi Germany, Remember again that Joseph Stalin, the commissar of the Soviet Union, the leader of the Soviet Union, was continuing to push his way from the east, but it was also a massive bloodbath as he tried to defeat Hitler in the Ural regions, working his way west, pushing Hitler further and further back. So while these two fronts were putting a colossal amount of pressure on Hitler, at the same time, the United States, coupled with England, along with other allies such as those from the Netherlands, Luxembourg, France, and Belgium, as well as Canada and even Australia, was volunteering forces for an eventual invasion from the west of the European continent in what would become a cross-channel attack. Hitler was in no way unprepared for this. He was fully aware of the potential that the Allies could cross that relatively narrow English Channel and establish a foothold on the European continent north of the Pyrenees Mountains that separate France from Spain and north of the Alps that basically bottles up the Italian boot of Italy, the boot of Italy from the north. If the Allies landed and were able to stay for any amount of time north of the Pyrenees and northwest of the Alps, it could be the beginning of the end for Hitler. And again, he unfortunately was smart enough to know this. 
That's why he put a massive amount of defensive weaponry along the modern-day coast of France. Yes, the field marshal lost North Africa, but Hitler could not spare, at least up to this point, to lose Rommel. So Rommel would be responsible for establishing that defensive front. A vast volume of, of solid steel and concrete would make up what became known as the Channel Wall or the Western Atlantic, the Western European Atlantic Wall. It was going to take a substantial amount of time, effort, and human power to successfully make an invasion of the European continent along the English Channel. So much so that while the actual plans and preparation would begin in southeastern England, a tremendous amount of effort and human power would also be established well north of that to, to indicate to the Germans that the Americans and the British would try attacking from the narrowest point of the English Channel, which would be just off of Calais, France. So much so was this important that Germany believed that the, that the American and English offensive would be coming to Calais, that we put at four and eventually five-star general, none other than George Patton, physically on the ground opposite Calais in England, as he led basically a massive fake army with fake weaponry. It became known as Operation Fortitude. Again, I would encourage you at this point to get to just to be able to demonstrate because pictures can speak so much more than my words ever could is to put it on pause here and look up in a, your search engine of choice Operation Fortitude and just click on images. And yes, maybe your eyes will pop open and jaw hit the keyboard when you look at four look at four American or four British soldiers, one on each corner of a tank as they were holding it up off the ground. Four people lifting a 35-ton tank. How is that possible? Because it wasn't. The tank was made out of plastic and rubber. Planes that were made out of cardboard and old useless pieces of wood that as the Luftwaffe came to do their surveillance from the air, they could see hundreds and hundreds of tanks and almost a thousand planes on the ground ready to take off from a runway that would never see a plane take off of it for the rest of the war. And yes, despite the anger that George Patton felt for being responsible for a fake army, despite his aptitude and skill at leading an actual army in real battle, Patton couldn't be spared. As Roosevelt said, and Eisenhower agreed, Patton, you've got to be identified by the Germans because then they know for sure that the brains behind the operation is right off of Calais, France. It would be the still relatively unknown Eisenhower that would lead the actual invasion significantly further south on the island nation of the British Kingdom and there take a longer approach southeast across the dangerous part of the English Channel and would come in off of the beaches of Normandy.
So this just gives, again, a quick sneak preview of just how massive an undertaking this was going to be. The question, though, begs, could it be done? Was there ever doubt on Eisenhower's mind, in Eisenhower's mind, as well as that of Prime Minister Winston Churchill and American President Franklin Roosevelt? Sure there was. The naval invasions, historically, are some of the most difficult to, to successfully pull off. To give you an idea of this, Eisenhower, before the invasion began, already wrote his resignation letter that if the invasion is a failure, it is the fault of his and his alone. Yet another sign of the unbelievable courage of Eisenhower's leadership and integrity. But as Dr. Stephen E. Ambrose wrote in his book, D-Day, this one paragraph sums up why Hitler felt that history was really on his own side. And I take this from the beginning of chapter two on page 39 in the second full paragraph. Quote, it was going to be difficult enough, even with surprise. Amphibious operations are inherently the most complicated in war. Few have ever been successful. Julius Caesar and William the Conqueror had managed it. But nearly every other naval invasion attempted against organized opposition had failed. Napoleon had not been able to cross the English Channel, nor had Hitler. The Mongols were defeated by the weather when they tried to invade Japan, as were the Spanish when they tried to invade England in 1588. The British were frustrated in the Crimea in the 19th century and defeated at Gallipoli in World War I. End quote. What this just shows, though, again, is just the way that the historical record that Hitler, again, realized in the English Channel, as narrow as it is, was still enough to keep him from invading England. Wouldn't that same form of protection work to protect him? Again, he wasn't going to take chances on that. That's why he put Rommel in charge. Please note that even with this extensive preparation, where literally simulations and actual model, massive model of the Normandy beaches were made and the training was done on the opposite side of the English island in order again to be able to deceive any surveillance by the German Luftwaffe. As it was, two out of three beach invaders would not live in the early hours of the invasion. Three out of four paratroopers, it was estimated, would land dead. That doesn't mean the one that survived, survived completely unharmed. It could be harmed, but again, his heart was still beating. Those, again, as I say, were the, the initial statistics, initial guesstimates of how deadly this invasion was going to be. At the same time, a World War II soldier later on would write of the psychological readiness of the U.S. soldier. This also comes from Ambrose's book, D-Day, on pages 48 into 49, quote, in wartime, Paul Fussell, F is in Frank, U-S-S-E-L-L, writes that men in combat go through two stages of rationalization, followed by one of perception. Considering the possibility of severe wound or death, the average soldier's first rationalization is, quote, it can't happen to me. 
I am too clever, agile, well-trained, good-looking, beloved, tightly laced, etc. The second rationalization is it can happen to me, and I'd better be more careful. I can avoid the danger by watching more prudently the way I take cover, dig in, expose my position by firing my weapon, keeping extra alert at all times, etc. Finally, the realization is it is going to happen to me. And only my not being there is going to prevent it. For a direct frontal assault on a prepared enemy position, men who have not seen what a bullet or landmine or an exploding mortar round can do to a human body are preferable to men who have seen the carnage. Men in their late teens or early 20s have a feeling of invulnerability. Told by a commanding officer on the eve of D-Day that nine out of the 10 would become casualties in the ensuing, ensuing campaign. The one soldier would look to his left and then look to his right, and the average soldier would think to himself, you poor bastards, end quote. What drives home the reality is when those soldiers jump into the water for the first time into the dark seawater as it would be in the early morning hours before the sun was even up. But as they started to swim the shore, to shore, the seawater would take on a different consistency and a different smell, and yes, even a different taste. That would be the unmistakable identification of human blood. As they got closer and closer to the shore, Many of these young soldiers could be horrified realizing that they are not actually trying to climb over dead animals, but dead fellow soldiers. As they work their way onto shore, as the sun comes up, realizing that they are getting hit with countless bullets, the way the horrified soldiers would use a dead body for cover, and in some cases, the shame that they would feel in doing so. In terms of the psychological readiness of the soldier as well, the American soldiers and the English and British, the British and the French and other Allied soldiers also had to listen to their own version of Tokyo Rose. Yes, the average listener knows who Tokyo Rose was. She was the Japanese woman with a strong accent that would speak in English to try to use propaganda against the soldiers who were planning to continue to fight in the Japanese islands. But less people know about the comparable woman over in the European theater. She was known as Axis Sally. Axis Sally, as Dr. Ambrose talks about on page 55 of his book, Sometimes the information he would begin, quote, could prove disconcerting to the Allied forces preparing for the invasion. Sergeant Gordon Carson of the United States 101st was stationed west of London late in 1943. He liked to listen to Access Sally on the radio. 
She was popular with the American troops because of her accent and her sweet, sexy voice, and because she played the latest hits, interspersed with crude propaganda. Why fight for the communists? Why fight for the Jews? That gave the men a laugh. But they did not laugh when Sally interspersed her commentary with remarks that sent chills up the spines of her listeners, such as, hello to the men of Company E, 101st Airborne, who were in Adelborne the other night. Hope you boys enjoyed your passes to London last weekend. Oh, by the way, please tell the town officials that the clock on the church is three minutes slow. Axis Sally had her facts straight. And the hundreds of GIs and Tommies tell their stories similar to even just that one soldier's about the famous clock tower. Fifty years later, the veterans still shook their heads and wondered, how the hell did she know that? The bottom line is, is that Axis Sally, who also became known as the Bitch of Berlin, was one of the most influential propagandists against the American cause. The reason being is because unlike Tokyo Rose, who was Japanese, Axis Sally, or the Bitch of Berlin, was not German at all. In fact, she wasn't even European. When the war was over, the Bitch of Berlin was tried for treason and put in jail in her home country and that she served her time until 1961. When released, then made every effort to become educated and became a school teacher where she died of natural causes in 1989 in her hometown of Columbus, Ohio. Axis Sally was one of ours. She was an American. If you'd like to know more about her, I encourage you to do a, a quick uh, internet search with Axis Sally or the Bitch of Berlin with the words Akron Beacon Journal, A-C-R-O-N Beacon Journal with my last name. And you'll see a column that the newspaper they, uh, get it, uh, ran, the syndicate ran in or, or around June of 2021. So just something to listen to read if you can, if you'd like to know more about her, because so few people not only know about her, less even know that she actually was an American. So on to D-Day. Here we are with this invasion that's planned. At D-Day, H-Hour, the Allied soldiers realizing that Rommel also knew how to fake things. So what do I mean by that? Well, first off, the common question is, what does D in D-Day mean? It roughly means the same, it's the equivalent of H-Hour. D-Day simply means the day. So saying D-Day essentially is like saying day-day. H-Hour is like saying hour-hour. But it works like this. My commanding officer, I'm responsible for, let's say, for 12 men. And my commanding officer comes to me and says, Kinsella, you and your boys are going in on D-Day at H-Hour plus 5. Okay, all I know is that when the invasion begins, I'm not going to be in the first wave of men going in. I'm going to be five hours later. Another commander might be told that he and his forces will be going in on D-Day plus two. 
meaning he's not going to be there that original day or even the next day. He would be going in two days later, providing that the initial landfall is a success. That said, the reason for this is likewise that I am told my time when I'm leaving. Now, the question is, where am I going? Where are my men going? Well, as we're going up onto the beach, we ask soldiers who are already there, perhaps injured, perhaps and hopefully not, where are you? Do you know where you're at? Yes, I'm on easy red. And I think to myself, well, I need to go to easy green. So I'm going to go to my right because alphabetical order, that's where I'm going to be at in these beaches that are now known as the five beaches of Normandy, Omaha, Utah, Juneau, Gold, and Sword. Those names don't exist in France. All of this was part of the code system. And the reason being is that when I'm told that I'm going to be going in at H and D-Day at H hour plus five to Omaha and Easy Red, I know where I'm going based on those words, but I don't have a clue until I actually get there, close to where I need to be. That was the way that hundreds of thousands and eventually millions of soldiers could be organized and not everyone running into one another and going into the wrong places. As it was, it would still be chaos, but it would be far more manageable chaos. But most importantly, imagine that if a Nazi or a fascist spy was in the bushes, was just around the corner listening to the orders that were given to me, was just outside a window of a command center, and I received my orders, that spy would be hearing the exact same amount of information, but he would have actually learned nothing other than there's a potential invasion. And that was the reason for the code system. It was to protect the nature of the actual invasion itself. At H hour, ironically enough, when the soldiers started to embark from the various Higgins boats that were made in New Orleans, hence the reason why the World War II American Museum is in New Orleans. When those Higgins boats, those long flat bottom boats, the soldiers at the very back of the or front of those boats, they would use a pole to try to find the sandbar in the English Channel. Once the sandbar was reached by the pole in the water coming up higher and higher and higher, they know that they are arriving at the sandbar. Quietly, the transom or the door would be raised and the soldiers would jump out. Now, as for those of you not familiar with the sandbar, it's those natural areas of sand that build up in large bodies of water. They, tend, they generally tend to be fairly stiff or thick or dense areas of sand that the soldiers would jump into. Remember, soldiers, again, carrying anywhere from 45 to 75 pounds or more on their backs, on their beans, and they would jump in with their boots and land probably about ankle deep into the sand. And then from there, they would continue to wade further away from the boats towards shore. As the first several soldiers in each boat was jumping off of the sandbar, something quickly and horrifically dawned on the soldiers who had yet to jump. The soldiers that were in front of them had yet to come up for air. Where were those soldiers? Everyone quickly learned that the Americans, with George Patton creating his fake 
potential launch site wasn't the only one that knew how to fake things. Erwin Rommel created a fake sandbar, a sandbar that had recently poured equivalent of play sand, poured in a long line bordering the coastal area of France, so that when the soldiers landed on it, instead of going down to ankle deep in, in sand, they were now anywhere from waist deep or higher. As they attempted to use their hands to push themselves up out of the sand, their hands only dug in further until they drowned. You are the commander of those boats. What do you do when you realize that the soldiers, your fellow soldiers, are down there gasping for their last breath of life? You have no choice. You pull down the, the, the transom and you steer forward, looking for the real sandbar. Yes, as some soldiers later attested, hearing the props of those boats, hitting the helmets or other objects from their fellow soldiers who were drowning right below them. At H hour plus five, Allied soldiers were now crawling over human bodies in waves of seawater, splashing human blood all over them. By the end of the day of June 6, 1944, the Allies had landed in Normandy, France. In 13 and a half hours, 5,000 ships, 10,000 aircraft, and 175,000 soldiers had made landfall, with thousands and thousands of casualties, 2,000 just on the Omaha beach alone. And that again, that's just those that were swimming ashore. Unlike the successful landing, this is when Eisenhower perhaps assumed the rest of the invasion of France into Germany would go as smooth as, smooth as the initial landing had gone, where he would be rudely surprised when he promised that most of the soldiers would be home by Thanksgiving, everyone gone by Christmas, when in fact the opposite would be true. Because that following Christmas, over six months later, they would still be fighting the Germans and yet a last but another German offensive. From July through December 1944, the Allies advanced at a snail's pace. And yes, the Battle of the Bulge, the infamous last German offensive, would eventually overtake and consume 30,000 American prisoners of war the largest haul in the Second World War. It was a colossal move by the Germans that even still did nothing to assist them and prevent their eventual fall. As early 1945 opened up into the spring of 1945, the Nazi regime slowly disintegrated. Hitler eventually, way, way too late, would commit suicide 10 days after his 56th birthday when he would put the revolver against his head and commit suicide on April 30th, 1945. Germany would surrender eight days later, making VE Day, V is in victory, E is in Europe, VE Day, May 8th, 1945. Now, 
while that ends the eventual conquering of Germany, please remember, the Americans never made their way all the way to Berlin. The Soviet forces got there first. And while the Soviet Union had taken over vast amounts of territory in Eastern Europe, on their way, marching toward the ultimate prize destination of Berlin, so too were the Americans, French, and the British coming in from the West. We would meet at an eventual line, which would unfortunately be roughly the location of where a future East and West Germany would later be created in the another infamous war known as the Cold War that would begin arguably within minutes after VE Day, when it dawned on the America and her allies that Joseph Stalin of the Soviet Union had no intention on releasing any territory that it had taken from Nazi-occupied Germany. And that's where we begin with the Cold War a few podcasts from now. Reason being that it's not the next podcast is because, listeners, this war is not over. Not even close. Sure, the victory in Europe is secured. Hitler is dead. Mussolini hung. But there's still a war in the Pacific going on. And as General Leslie Groves asked Dr. Oppenheimer, what do you think the Japanese are doing? Shooting squirrels? So thank you for listening. If you liked what you heard today, please go to my website, CE Kinsella, and email me with any questions or comments you might have, or leave me a review as well. Have a great day, and we'll see you in the 35th podcast with the eventual wrap-up of the Second World War in the Pacific Theater. Thank you.